Good morning. Good morning, man, K First family and those online, it is great to be with you today. So good to see you. Uh, you know, Pam and I love uh, Dave and Ann and just appreciate you guys so much and your staff and your team and your whole church. And uh, it really is a, a joy to be a part of this extended family. I've been trying to get an internship now here for six years. <clears throat> and every time I'm here, I drop the hint, send me the form, send me the, anything to sign up. And I still have yet to get it. So I, I don't know what to make about that. <clears throat> I think I'm welcome one week, but one week is enough, I think is what that boils down to. Um, and of course, a bunch of your staff and people who attend here are from North Point. We love you guys. They're just so glad to see you today. Pastor Dave did ask me to come and share as part of this series on Ephesians Masterclass. I haven't heard the confession. I love that. That's great. Those things can be powerful, a way of orienting us. And um, I love that you all are engaging scripture seriously. I'm sure that you probably are aware that in the 20th century and now into the 21st century, we've been on kind of a journey where for a little while, maybe we had a little bit of a, if I can even call it this, maybe a little bit of an idolatry happening where we believe that if we knew the Bible, we knew God. Now, how many know those two things are not true? That I could have a PhD in you, but still nobody knows you like your kid or like your spouse or the people who are with you. Information is no substitute for dwelling in close relationship. And so I think we had kind of that thing going. And then I think maybe in response to that, we kind of swung over the other direction where we maybe weren't engaging scripture as deeply and as meaningfully as we should. But holy scripture is God's absolute mechanism for us authoritatively and authentically encountering Jesus by the Spirit of God. And so it is deeply important that we engage Scripture. And I just celebrate that your pastor says, hey, we want to take intentional time to meaningfully engage Scripture. You know, I, I think that leading a church or leading any Christian organization is a lot more like sailing than it is like operating a machine, in a machine, you get to punch the button, set it, and it just goes. It doesn't matter what it's happening. But with sailing, it's sort of like you have to pay attention to which way the wind is going, how strong the wind is. And it's a series of tensions and commitments that you hold on to. And I just am grateful for a leader who is really one of the best sailors I know, who knows and pays attention to what the Spirit is saying, to what's happening in the culture, to what's happening in this community, and is holding on to those pieces going, God, what are you doing right now? Do I need to pull a little here? Do I need to let go a little bit here? What do I need to do? And your pastor is one of the best, one of the best, period. In fact, I think if we gave him a round of applause, that'd be perfectly appropriate. So it's my privilege to be a part for just a few moments. And if I can, I'd like to do two things. I've made my job harder than I should have today. I apologize for that. That means I'm gonna have to go just a little bit quickly. If you've heard me speak before that I speak quickly anyway. So I'm going to do my best to be quick, clear and crisp. If I'm not, just say, don't say anything. It'll just be over, hold your breath and we'll get done. The two things that I'd like to accomplish today. First, I'd like to draw three principles uh, from the very beginning of Ephesians, if I can, because they're gonna help us understand the way that I'm going to interact with chapter five. Now, <clears throat> if you have been doing this differently 
over the last little bit and Pastor Dave has come up or another speaker has come up and says, this isn't what Ephesians is like. Just know I'm the one who's wrong and your pastor and leadership are the one who's right. And you can just say, well, that's how you don't read Ephesians. But it won't make any sense for you what I'm doing in chapter five if I don't explain kind of where I'm coming from. And then we'll take those three principles and we'll apply them just in brief Uh, trying to be as quick as we can into chapter five. So if you do me a favor and pray, you can flip over to Ephesians chapter five. But before we get there, I'll spend about 10 minutes uh, and some introductory remarks in Ephesians chapter one. So why don't you pray with me? Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for the really powerful time of worship. Thank you for this team that led us. I sensed your love and that is a miracle because I need it. I need your grace and I need your mercy in my life. And when I see myself in your presence in the presence of perfect love, I feel inadequate to be there and to feel your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. What a miracle that we get to be a part of that. So would you use this moment in our lives, use this moment in our lives to make that productive to help disciple us, to help make us like you so that other people can experience that grace. We can see your new creation take over the earth, be filled with your image and your glory. We ask in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. So to introduce the three basic ideas that Paul is going to be working with, or at least from my perspective, Paul is going to be working with in the epistle to the Ephesians, we really only need to look at one verse. Ephesians chapter one, verse one. You can go ahead and pop that up there on the screen for me. That'd be great. Ephesians chapter one, verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Now I want you to pay very close attention to this next line. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now in this initial greeting, we already have a series of ideas and tensions that are introduced that will work themselves out through the rest of the epistle. I'll introduce you to them just very, very briefly. They are threefold so you can see how we apply them in chapter five. The first is this, that what we are in makes us what we are. What we are in makes us what we are. I don't know, maybe you picked up on the tension already when we read verse one, where they are both in Ephesus and they are also in Christ Jesus. That there is a tension happening because what we are in makes us what we are and they are in two different things. There is a competition for dominant environment in their life. You cannot convince me that what we are in does not make the difference in our life. My wife is from Southern California, and I don't know if you know this, but we are about to enter into the great dark abyss that is winter in Michigan. So you're like, that, that's, that. Whoa, someone's excited about it. I don't know if you know this, but if you were raised in Michigan, you process vitamin D more effectively than most people in the United States. And the reason for that is you need to survive the winter. My wife was raised in Southern California. She does not process vitamin D as well. And I can tell you about February that the environment that you have been in impacts who you are. When we went to build our house, my wife said, show me the window man. We went to the window man. We have 67 windows in our home. And during the winter, I can find my wife laid out like a cat in front of one of the windows, soaking up the magic beams of life that are coming from the sun. It works like a sundial. I can figure out what time it is by what window she is lying in front of. Right? She's just trying to be alive. Why? Because the environment you are raised in actually impacts you. It makes you who you are. And in fact, it actually impacted her biologically which impacts her sort of way she interacts with the world that she's in. It impacts us big time. So the place that we are in 
impacts us. It makes us who we are. The way in which you, and there's a way in which you and I are sort of like cucumbers in the pickling juice. They're slowly and irresistibly turning us into something else. We are the Captain Crunch in the milk, slowly being permeated and made soft and pliable. We are the brisket in the smoker, taking on the smell of the glorious goodness of hickory. But we will be impacted by the environment that we are in. There is nothing we can do about it. We are, what we are in makes us who we are. In fact, our own universe bears witness to this. I don't know if you know this, but there are over 10 septillion planets in the known universe, sprawled out across hundreds of billions of light years of space. Every single one of those planets started off a jagged, misshapen piece of something floating around in the cosmos. But over time, because of the forces of the environment it is in, the edges have been chipped away, lava has come out, water has come down, and over time, gravity and the forces of the universe have made it so that every single planet, 10 septillion, 10 followed by 24 zeros, are every single one of them round. Every pebble that's in the river has been shaped and formed over time so that there is a sameness to them. You and I cannot escape it. What we are in makes us who we are. We can't escape this environment. That's number one. Number two, we are in the world and it is impacting us. You and I cannot avoid it we are in our Ephesus. Now your Ephesus may be Kalamazoo, your Ephesus mind is Grand Rapids, but it is impacting us because it was designed to. God designed the world so that it would be a place where you and I would experience each other in a way that let us know who God was. He, created it so that we would experience the created world and we would say, wow, God is big and God is beautiful. He created it so that our emotions, everything about us would teach us about ourselves, would teach us about meaning and would teach us about God so that we could learn about him. The problem is, is the in that we are in is deeply broken. And when it got broken, it didn't lose its power. So now it has formative power, but instead of being regenerative, reformative power, it has become deformative power. It has become destructive power that actually sort of tears us apart. I want to show you how this works, maybe just sort of briefly. In fact, if we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, here's what it says. It says that we learn there that there is a course of this world. The idea in that passage is that this world is like a river and that we are stuck in it. And in the course of this world, it is following the prince of the air and the, and, and the spirit is now of the world is at work in that forming us and changing us. In Ephesians chapter four, here's what it says. It tells us that the environment we are in is so powerful that it can make us like children tossed to and fro in the waves or like someone who is driven by the wind. Do you see the idea there? The things that are around us, they impact us. And there is a course to the world and it is having its way with us. It is shaping how we think about things. It is shaping what we value, how we perceive people, how we think about ourselves, our bodies, our sexuality, our family. Everything is being influenced by the world that we live in. It's having an impact on us. Now again, there's nothing we can do in simple ways to escape that dynamic. Let me give you one example of how this works practically. Maybe you're familiar with something called uh, an ACE assessment. It's a simple assessment, 10 questions that helps us assess based on 10 simple questions about difficult things that might've happened to us as children, uh, what kind of impact that might have on our lives. And if the crazy thing is, is 10 simple questions, if a person answers yes to four or more of those, here's what we know will happen. 
statistically. An A score of four or more means that the person is seven times more likely to be an alcoholic or to display some other kind of addictive behavior, sexual addiction, drug addiction, workaholism. Why? Because what we are in makes us who we are. The person who has four or more on an ACE assessment is 1,200% more likely to attempt suicide. Why? Because what we are in makes us who we are. The person who has four or more on an ACE assessment is more likely to have more jobs, more marriages, more depression, more medications, more autoimmune diseases. Why? Because what we are in actually makes us who we are. Let me give you one more example. There was a powerful research study done with the grandchildren of people who were in concentration camps during the Second World War. And what we found is that the grandchildren of people who were in concentration camps during the Second World War, even though they had never been to Germany, they weren't alive during the Second World War, they had never been to Dachau, they'd never been to Auschwitz, many of them had never even met their grandparents, were three times more likely to be diagnosed with a significant adolescent mental illness than the normal population. Why? Because the things that happen to us in the environment impact us. Are we, are we clear on that? The world that we are in, we cannot escape it. There is a dynamic happening in our lives right now. And our environment is training us. And unfortunately, it is harming us. It is forcing us into compliance with itself. It's bringing us to a place where we participate in the way that it commodifies people and treats people as objects. Self-isolation, it's selfishness and it's selfish perspective. It's willingness to use others. It's tendency to gain value by comparing. In our environment, we become both victims, but then being formed by the environment, we participate and become perpetrators. That is the very definition of what it means to be worldly to participate and be formed by the world system. Number three, the only way to be other than our environment is to be in another environment. Let me say that again. The only way to be other than our environment, our world environment, because it will shape us, it has power with it, is to be in another environment that has a dominant effect over that environment in our lives. That's the only way to resist being conformed to the world that we live in. And this is the mystery that gets introduced in Ephesians chapter one. This is such an important word. It says that they are the saints who are in Ephesus. Now that word in the Greek is hagios and it has a very simple meaning. It means other. It means different. In other words, it says there are some people and they are in Ephesus, but they are other than Ephesus. They're the saints who are in Ephesus. There is a distinction about them. There is something about them that makes the difference. And we learn the secret of it, and that is that they are in Christ, that they are in a primary formative environment that has taken precedence over the Ephesian environment. So they may be in Ephesus, but because they're in Christ, they are insulated and take a primary environment above that. Now, Paul then proceeds to use this word in, which is two times in one one. He proceeds to use five more times in chapter one, over 40 more times in the rest of the epistle. But critical to his argument is a very, very important idea. And it's this, that for the in Christness to be more powerful in our lives than our in Ephesus, Ephesusness, Ephesusnicity. 
For it to be more powerful, listen to me very carefully. It can't be a faith statement. It can't be something we believe. It has to actually be a formative environment that impacts our lives on a daily basis. So believing that God loves me is different than being loved by God. Believing that there is a God out there who has a purpose is different than experiencing the purpose that God has for me. And Paul lays this out, and here's how he underscores it in chapter one, verses 13 and 14. He says, the spirit is the guarantee of your inheritance. What is the inheritance of the saints? The inheritance of the saints is that you and I forever and ever will be in the presence of Christ. What does that mean? That means that there will be pure love, pure purpose, pure bliss forever. There'll be no more pain, no more guilt, no more condemnation, no more sinfulness, no more brokenness against us or us breaking other people. All of that will be gone. It'll be swallowed up in the goodness of God forever and ever and ever. And when he says that you have a guarantee of that, the word that he uses there is very important. It's not a guarantee like an IOU. It's not a guarantee like a promise. It is a guarantee that is a down payment. In other words, he says, the Spirit's job is to help you and I experience our inheritance now as a primary environment. Ephesus is not my environment. My inheritance is my environment. Critical. He moves on to make this point even more clearly in 3, 16, and 19. He prays that we might be filled with the Spirit who helps us comprehend what is the breadth and width and depth of the love of Christ that it passes all knowledge. Why? Because it's an experience. See, Paul is all about, he is going full Pentecostal. He's saying there is no such thing as us being transformed out of worldliness without a reality experience of the Spirit in our lives, a walking with the spirit that is transformational. I don't think that I can overstate the importance of this being an experience rather than just something we know. I know it's so hard. The, man, the bad man is yelling. I talk to my kids sometimes about the idea of post-it note religion. The idea that God just tells us things and we believe it. I don't know, I don't wanna raise my kids with post-it note parenting. I wanna hold my kids, I wanna love my kids, I wanna be with my kids, be present with my kids, and God is the same way. So the three big ideas then, we'll march into chapter five briefly. What we are in makes us who we are. We are in the world and it is impacting us and the only way to be other than our environment is to be in another environment. In this case, an environment of the love of Christ made real, real, real by the work of the Spirit. Okay, now chapter five. Whew. We doing okay? All right, good. Chapter five. I don't really know another way to do this, so I'm gonna break this up into four simple points and we're just gonna kind of give a skeleton of them in a way that we can see how these three concepts work their way out in chapter five. So that's the way that we'll go about it. The first section we'll look at is verses one and two, and I'll give it this heading. We are called to change <clears throat> what others are in, what environment they are in. It says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us 
and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The call here is to reproduce the life-giving environment of Jesus that is making us other than Ephesus. The call here is for us to be so transformed by being in Christ and not in Ephesus that when people come into our presence, they experience what it might be like to be in Christ. That's the idea. We reproduce this life-giving environment. Our call is to be so much in the presence of God. I love what C.S. Lewis says, that we sort of play dress up as God for each other, that we sort of hobble along trying to love each other like Christ, trying to work the grace of Christ into each other. And in that feeble attempt to be God to each other, God's grace comes down and we meet him there. Martin Luther says, the call of the Christian is to be a little Christ. So that when other people encounter him or her, they know something of what it might be like to be loved by God. We are the free sample people at Costco, handing out the tiny little cups of dark chocolate covered coconut almonds, saying, if you enjoy one, you should buy the whole bag. When people experience us, they should say, if you like this, you will love that. Right? But it does not happen if we are not personally transformed. If we are going to be little Christ, it will be because we have been much with Christ. We simply cannot be in the world and not with Christ and become like Christ and fulfill the mission. It's not possible because the world, Ephesus, doesn't make people in the image of Christ. Only the environment of the Spirit does. Outline of Section number one, we are called to change what others are in. Then Paul warns us in the next verses, verses three through 14, that we cannot change the environment others are in if we are still in it ourselves. Physician, heal thyself. Note the environment language in the text. Let's read it. We'll read just verses eight through 11. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Note the environment language. There is dark and there is light. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light. And he goes on to say essentially this. If you are light, now this is great logic, you can't be dark. There is no such thing as light and dark in the same space. You are either light or you are dark. And the problem becomes that if our job is to reproduce a Christ environment for other people and we are in the dark, we can only reproduce one thing, the dark. It's not possible for us to be anything other than what we truly are. Paul kind of goes for the jugular here. And we can't pull back from the text. This is one thing I love about reading scripture it consistently is that it demands that we not just gloss over sections that make us uncomfortable. Paul, in essence, says here that there are three kinds of ideas, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. And in essence, he says, if we are sexual users, if we are defilers or we are people users by default, it is a sign that we are more in Ephesus than we are in Christ. And until we get that sorted out, we can't be a part productively of bringing other people to Christ. All we can do is leave them in Ephesus. And you know, I think 
it would probably be honest of us to say, whether we're online or we're here, that this probably resonates with some of us, that we have a besetting sin, if we can use that Bible language. And it could be rage, I'm not talking about a little bit of anger, but it could be rage, it could be sexual, it could be bitterness, it could be jealousy, it could be greed, but it controls us, it is the thing we are in. If I were to ask you what defines your life, it would be trying to establish value because someone told you that you were not worthy. It could be, I'm trying to find ways to satiate my sexual pleasure. It could be, I'm trying to find ways to fulfill my economic needs so that I can feel as though I have value. And what's interesting about us is we know that it's not right and so we try to find ways to compensate, don't we? we? We give and we serve and we pray and we come to church and hoping that all of the things that we do in the light will somehow outweigh the darkness. That somehow in the balances of God, he'll find a way to wink at this darkness. When the reality Paul says is, I'm sorry that God, we sang this morning, he loves us too much to leave us that way. He loves us too much to leave us in our darkness. That's heavy, I get it. But Paul isn't going to leave us there because the escape from being in the world isn't exactly what we might think. It's not white-knuckling obedience. I think sometimes we think Christianity is asking God for forgiveness and then holding on for dear life, just hoping we can keep from doing something awful until we die. Yes? That was my experience when I became a Christian. I'm like, okay, I stopped doing horrible things. I hope I can keep stopping doing horrible things. Just long enough to make it to heaven. But the good news is that really isn't what Jesus is after. Because he knows at the end of the day that our problem isn't really a holiness problem. Our problem is a wholeness problem. That sin isn't our fundamental problem. It is a byproduct of our fundamental problem. So I want you to listen to Paul as he transitions into the third section, verses 15 through 21. Changing who we are is not something we do. Starting in verse 15, look carefully then how you walk. Pay attention, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of time. Here's another one of those examples where Paul says the, way, the life that you're caught in is, is destructive to us because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Why? Because the Spirit reveals the love of Christ and creates a new environment for your life. Be filled with the Spirit. And when you're filled with the Spirit, you'll address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I love the hopefulness of this text. Again, our holiness issue is not something we have to work our way out of. So if we found ourselves in the previous section saying, that is me, if anyone knew what my sexual addiction was, if anyone knew what my greed addiction was, if anyone knew the anger and the bitterness that legitimately controls me, it is my environment. You wanna talk darkness, it's right in here. The good news is, is you don't have to work your way out of it. Paul shows up and he says, you can't work your way out of it because it's not something you're doing, it's something you are. Now that may sound like worse news at first, 
But the good news is, is that it's not on us. It can only be a miracle from him. It can only be a transformational event. It can only be because a new environment descends on us and transforms us. In fact, Paul would look at us and he would say, the fact is you are behaving the way you are behaving because you have been in a broken system and you need to get in another system that heals you and brings wholeness and brings restoration. I will resist the urge to mention the back to tank from Star Wars. But you need to get yourself into another environment. Look at the effects of not being in the spirit, debauchery. In other words, using ridicule, insult, harm, self-centeredness, sexual self-centeredness. And it's not just wine, it's anything that prevents us from getting into the presence of God. Because the battle here, and I love this about this passage, when he says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the spirit, it harkens back to two passages in the Song of Solomon, where being filled with wine is compared to the love of the lover. And it is this idea that when a person is filled with wine or a person is filled with love, the object that they are focused on takes precedence. It is their environment. It is their influence. And so when he says, don't be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the spirit, it is a battle between influences. And so I could even have, even talking about Jesus could be my influence that keeps me from the environment of Jesus. Working for Jesus could be the environment that keeps me away from being in the environment of Jesus, the transformational presence that he has. It's important. When that happens, when we're filled with the spirit, I love how he describes it. I don't know how you feel about yourself. I don't consider myself the most spiritual person in the world. Anybody feel that way? You meet these people and they're just like, bless God. You catch him, you're like you walk into the bathroom and you know, if you're a guy, they're standing at the urinal and they're like, praise God from who? I'm like, hey man, I'm just trying to go to the bathroom here. You know, you meet these people. I don't feel like I'm the most spiritual. But I, if you read this description, it says, when you get filled with the spirit, something is gonna happen and it's not gonna be false and it's not gonna be phony. It's not gonna be put on. It's not gonna be a show spiritually. You're gonna be so full of the love of Jesus that out of your heart is gonna flow psalms and spiritual songs, that you're gonna look at your brother and you're gonna love them and care for them and nurture them. That you're gonna be in such a different environment that where it used to be chaos to be in your presence, now it's life-giving to be in your presence. Where it used to be, you used to be a taker from others, now people come to your presence and, and they give. People, when they get into your presence, it's like they just walked out of the Arizona sun into the mall AC, man. They are feeling good because you have been transformed and I have been transformed by the Spirit of Christ, legitimately. Then, in our last little section in chapter five, Paul gets down to the nitty gritty and he challenges us and says, if we are in Christ, in Christ's environment, please, because often when we say in Christ, we take that as a faith statement, right? I'm, I'm in Christ, okay. But if you read Ephesians, Paul doesn't mean that as a faith statement. He means that as an experience by the Spirit. A faith statement does not give you a new environment. An encounter with the Spirit of God gives you a new environment. Here in verses 22 through 33, he gets down to the nitty gritty and he says, if we have legitimately changed our environment, it will show up in our primary human environments. 
And he begins to go through a list. He's gonna talk about marriage. He's gonna talk about parents and children. He's gonna talk about our enemies. He's gonna talk about employers. He's gonna say, if we have legitimately experienced a new environment, that environment will carry over into our other environments. They will experience it there. Last point, verses 22 through 33, the most important environment we impact is sexuality and our marriage. Obviously, we could talk here for a long time, but I'll make just a couple of observations. Starting in verse 22, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Uh, ladies, I'm gonna set some of you free here in a second. <laughs> for the husband is, the, it's the worst when you get beat up with a Bible, isn't it? Nobody wants to be beat up with a submit woman. <laughs> if I ever said that, yeah, I'd have, I think I'd wake up on the floor, it'd be fantastic. <laughs> Slain in the Holy Ghost, I'm sure. Didn't know he gave black eyes, did you? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In other words, Paul basically wants to say, if our marriages are in Christ, they should be other than the rest of the marriages. I would just put it this way. Paul would basically say, there is no such thing as a marriage where there are two Jesus-filled, Holy Spirit-experiencing Christians where their marriage looks exactly like the marriages in the rest of the world. That there's a transformative effect in our lives. And I wanna give you just two simple examples of that. The first is, Paul actually pulls a pretty interesting power move here. A lot of times this passage gets built up and it's sort of like, women, you need to submit to your husbands. That's actually not is what is at play here. In the city of Ephesus, which is modern day Selchuk, I don't see where Kyle went, Kyle was in here. Well, there you are, man. We were in, in, uh, in Ephesus together. And um, in that city, what a lot of people don't know about it is that it has a strong history of female dominance. So it is actually believed that the city of Ephesus was founded by the Amazons. That's ancient mythology. There may be some piece of truth to that. But how many know when you believe your city is you know, founded by warrior princesses who don't need men, uh, it sort of has that kind of vibe to it as it moves forward. It had more female governors than any city in the ancient world. It had 28 female governors during the Roman Empire, way more than any other place. And the entire cultists of Artemis, which worshiped a female god, all of the high priestesses were females. So the political apparatus and the religious apparatus were both female dominated in Ephesus. Men were sort of utilized for two things, grunt labor and reproduction. How many women are like, man, does that feel familiar? Hello, last 2000 years. And so what's happening in this is Paul is looking at it and he's saying, no, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. It is not acceptable for the women to look at the men and to disrespect them and not treat them as equals. And it is unacceptable for the men to look at the women and to not love them even though they are being disrespected. So both men and women are supposed to be respected and both men and women are supposed to be loved. Are we okay with that? In other, but Paul comes on the scene and he says, I'm sorry, if your marriage is gonna be in Christ, it's gonna have to be other than Ephesus. That's number one. But then Paul moves into the issue of sexual union and I'll wrap up here. And he says there in verses 31 and 32, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. You might have cleave, which is a much sexier word. Am I allowed to say that? Sorry. Isn't that a symbol for like, <laughs> that's a bad, that's a different thing? Okay, okay. No, I thought that was like a political QAnon thing or something. I don't know what it is. My kids are always doing that to me now, trying to brainwash me. I don't know what's going on. 
leave their mother and father and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one. This mystery is profound. Now, Paul uses two explicitly sexual metaphors in this passage, cleaving and the two become one. Now, when Paul uses the word mystery, here's what he means. A mystery is something that happens in time and space that reveals something about God. So when the Gentiles are baptized in the Holy Spirit, without being in Jerusalem, without being converted to be Jews, he says, there's a mystery. It shows us that God's grace is poured out upon all people. It's something that has been revealed. And the only time in all of scripture where Paul says this mystery is profound is in the sexual union of two human beings. In other words, Paul looks at human sexuality and he says one of the very most important places that the otherness of the kingdom is going to show up is the way in which a husband and wife engage with each other's bodies. Maybe I can just say it this way. I think if we're not careful, we in the church, and I put it this way on purpose, can be engaged in what I'll call same-sex marriage. And what I mean by that is we engage in sex in exactly the same way the rest of the world does. Now, it may be between a husband and a wife, may be within the confines of marriage, but in every other way, it's still a function of using. It still functions on a line of, can you perform for me? Maybe it's used as a weapon of punishment, of withholding, maybe even used as a weapon of punishment in the giving. That we're made to feel like there's a place where we're not loved or where we're loved, where we're rejected, where we're worthy, where we're not acceptable. And yet Paul says that this is the greatest mystery, the greatest example of Christ's love coming into a human life. So when Christians are in Christ, immersed in the love of Christ, at the beginning of the chapter, he says there's filthiness and sexual usury of each other. And he comes full circle and he says, when we're in Christ, that sexual act, the absolute same act mechanically becomes transformed. What once was an act of selfishness now becomes an act of selflessness. What once was an act of taking is now an act of generosity. What once was an act of do we measure up an assessment is an act of generosity and grace and care. Where one person looks at another person and says, I know you, I see you. I know that JP, you're a 46-year-old man with a little belly. This little bald spot that's getting bigger. My hair's meeting in the middle. And my wife looks at me and she says, you are desired. I look at my wife after three children And I look at her and say, you are desired. My wife looks at me after maybe I've not been at my finest moment and she says, you are worthy of being loved. I look at my wife, you're worthy of being loved. See, this being in Christ thing transforms everything. Transforms everything. Let me pray. Father, I know we've come a long way and I'm eight minutes over. But I ask you one very simple thing 
I think if Paul were to pull aside the American church at large, and certainly my heart at times, and if I had to guess some of my friends here, if he were to pull us aside, I think what he would say is until we take the time to be in another environment, to actually spend time with Jesus in a way that's real by the Spirit. Until we we carve out a space in our life that allows Jesus to become more real than the abuse, more real than the stress, more real than the comparison, more real than the past, than the sin, than the hurt, Until we carve out time where we can experience another environment, we'll just become another round planet, another smoothed over pebble. The environment of this world will have its way with us. I think Paul would say, come away. Put it on your calendar. Spend time with Jesus, real time. And so, Father, that's my prayer today, that for my life, for all of our lives, we'd understand that no amount of activity will ever supplement being in your presence. No amount of reading or church attendance or service, whatever, would ever bring the kind of life that comes from you, Holy Spirit, pouring the love of Jesus into our hearts on a daily basis, making us new, bringing us to life satisfying our souls, making us a new kind of place. So I ask you that today, Lord, that each of us would leave today with a fresh commitment to be much in the presence of Jesus. In your name, amen.